0: morning, everyone. My name is uh, Rob Corbin, and my wife, Rosemary, and I uh, have uh, enjoyed and just treasured uh, being a part of this uh, Trinity Fellowship in these months. And uh, I have the blessing to lead us in the study of God's Word today. Uh, and I asked Ben, and he gave a psalm uh, today, Psalm 77. It's on page 540 in the Bibles that are provided here by the church. Um, It's probably not one of the better known Psalms, but it has become especially precious to me. Um, When uh, Rosemary and I first came to Orlando, we were going through a very difficult time, and uh, this psalm proved to be a great help. So um, I'd like us to look uh, at that psalm today. Um, It's a little loud. Oh, I'm sorry. The kids are free to go. <laughs> and they're doing a psalm. Great. Sorry about that. I forgot. All right. Well, um, this psalm is divided in two parts, um, basically. Um, and each part has two stanzas, two verses. Um, verses 1 through 9. Um, kind of lay out uh, this disillusionment that the that psalmist was facing. Uh, time of really, uh, I'm calling it the dark shadows of disillusionment, de- doing battle with them. And then verses 10 through 20 uh, lay out the answer that he found. And I'm, saying, I'm calling it re-emerging into the light of re-energized faith. So let's look at the first few verses here. <clears throat> he says, I cry aloud to God aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying, and my soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. One of the things I like so much about the Psalms is that it, it lays it all out there. You know, it doesn't hide anything, all the emotion. You, you can find anger, you can find frustration, you can find doubt. It doesn't pull any punches. It really is brutally honest with, with the things that the people of God struggle with and go through. And so here, this uh, Asaph, the, the writer of this psalm, says uh, in verse 2, in the day of my trouble. And that, that can sound so haunting, Uh, We can all relate. Job says, man was born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. And we all can relate to a time. We can say, yeah, that day has come for me. And we can probably count on the fact that probably there's another day coming down the road. Or maybe there's a day like that that you're experiencing right now in the day of my trouble. And uh, I'm glad that he doesn't spell out exactly what that is. Uh, better for us to be able to identify. Perhaps it's um, a period of time where you're going through relational trouble, Um, marriage, friends, co-workers, colleagues. There's there's a sense of betrayal. There's hurt. There's loss uh, of trust. And uh, we feel very acutely that that divide and the breakdown of relationships. Or perhaps there's physical trouble. The routine visit to the doctor suddenly doesn't, isn't routine anymore. And the doctor with grave face uh, comes in and says, well, they found something in the tests and, and it could be serious and we need to run more tests. And suddenly our world is just turned upside down. Or maybe it's financial trouble, um, loss of job, uh, financial losses, financial setbacks that can create great tension or trouble in our outlook, you know, our perspective. There's that sense of purposelessness, that uh, sense of futility, um, depression, all of the the mental uh, struggles, emotional troubles that we can't experience. For him, the day of trouble came, and he started out with one problem, whatever this was causing, this trouble, this distress— But then he, another problem, a second problem, a deeper problem emerged out of that. Look, as we read on in verse 2, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. There's entreaty, there's, there's a sense of pleading, there's an earnest seeking after God. He had perhaps, as in times past, trouble has come and he went to his Lord. He ran to that high tower, to that refuge. He ran to the one who, Psalm 46 says, is a very present help in time of trouble. And he goes to God. He stretches out his hands. He's asking God to help. But what's the result? My soul refuses to be comforted. Um. He started with one problem, and he ended up with a far deeper problem. Where is God? Where is God? Where, I, I can't get, connect the dots anymore. There were times in the past where I understood, I, I have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. He walks with me. He's my good shepherd that accompanies me in times of, of, uh, in places of, of still waters, but also through the valley of the shadow. He's with me. I heed his his uh, command to uh, cast all my cares on Him. I heed his command to to not be anxious for every anything, but in everything to to present my request to God. But where's the peace that surpasses comprehension to guard my heart and my mind? Where is it? And then he says. When I remember God, I moan. It's not computing with me. I cannot connect the dots in what I've heard and, and been taught in the scriptures and have personally experienced in the past about how God acts in one's life. And now it doesn't make sense. The heavens are brass. There's no answer coming. Can I share with you a particular day of trouble that I went through? And it, it had a lot to do with our ending up here in, in Orlando. Um, before coming to Orlando, I pastored a church there. Um, great, great years. And there's lots of wonderful people there. But we hit a rough patch um, where conflict rose in the church. And attendance started dropping off. And, and now, looking back, I feel like I was experiencing burnout, uh, during that time. And I'd like to, if you would indulge me, <clears throat> I'd like to read a little bit from the jur- from my journal, um, in those days. Uh, this is in May of 2009. I feel such a futility over my efforts at the church. I've been there, done that. I sense, a. Uh, a forlorn lack of confidence in my ability to make any difference. I look around me and see several who are losing steam. How can I help them? They need leading, and I feel helpless to help them. I'm at a conference for pastors, and Piper's message yesterday was from 2 Corinthians one twenty-four. We are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. Father, you know my own joy arising from my faith is not where it should be and where I need it to be, where the church needs it to be. I confess that I have failed to work for their joy in the faith. Too much of my service is for my joy in the faith. I don't know. Can you still use me at, this, at my church? And then May 13, 2009, my soul was conflicted last night. Wounds from hurts in the church surfaced again, and I expressed some of them to my friend. I didn't feel better for it. Actually, I felt sinful. What all is that within me that I need the Lord Jesus to deal with? Bitterness is one. I read of Saul and David and the mind battles, the mind disease that Saul was undergoing, the fear, jealousy, suspicion, self-centeredness, threatenedness, and the disappointment, anger, lashing out, lack of trust, withdrawal, all the baggage, the ugly breakdown of trust and love between people. Is there an evil spirit at work here? Undoubtedly. And then this is July 8th of 2009. The rumor is several are indicating they are leaving the church. Both Rosemary and me have been struggling so with depression feelings of tiredness, battling bitterness and hurt, and we're both struggling to have a good attitude about our ministry here. I woke this morning with dark feelings of despair, futility about the church, about my inadequacy as a leader, the constant thoughts of failure. I spent the afternoon praying, walking in the woods, trying to connect with my maker. I guess it helped somewhat. But I think of Jonathan Edwards and his experiences of utter ecstasy and captivation, almost caught up into the beauty of God's holiness. I don't think I've ever had that. I don't know if I could ever get in the right state to receive it. Oh God, my Father, please look on this weak and unworthy state of your servant. According to your great mercy, let me see you and teach me your way in these evil times. Help me to stand. Hold me up. Hold me up. July 9th. Feeling today hunkered down, stealing myself for the battle. I feel like I'm in the middle of the storm, just holding on to get through it. The waves are high now and the sky is dark. I fear what to expect next. I fear for my wife and my children. I fear the extent of the damage to our church. I'm becoming more resolute about the reality that my reputation is going to suffer. Father, deliver us from the evil one. Help me to put on the whole armor of God and to stand firm in this evil day." July 22nd, The storm goes on. Two more families are leaving the church. This controversy is taking on a life of its own. The snowball continues to roll down the mountain, and it continues to build. Dear Father, I know you are sovereign. My favor rests in your hands. I see my reputation being dragged through the mud. Seeds of doubt about me are being planted everywhere I turn. I feel like it's a story unfolding, and I am helpless to shape it. I'm just an observer, watching and waiting to see what will happen next. It just seems like bad things just continue to happen. Jesus, I just don't have anything to give anymore. I don't know how to get from your hand to minister to these people. Please, please have mercy upon me, upon us." And then several months later, October thirtieth, two 2009, this week I resigned from my position as pastor of West Rome Baptist Church. I feel the despairing weight of failure. Nine and a half years ago, I came with a lot of excitement and high expectations from a lot of people. They thought I could lead them to become a great church in size, vision, and impact. It has not turned out that way. I feel their disappointment. I feel like the Lord has withdrawn his favor on me. Oh, how clear it is that without the favor of the Lord, all man's efforts, all my efforts, turn to dust. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. <clears throat> it's a pretty dark time for me. And um, soon after that, we came to Orlando and had no idea what I was going to do next. Uh, my brother lived here. He had an empty room, and he said, you're welcome to come till you see what's next. And we literally had no other options. And so we, we moved down here. Well, back here to uh, Psalm 77, let's look at the impact of this seeking after God, of asking him for help and getting no response. What was the impact on Asaph? Look at verse 4. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I considered the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. So there's insomnia, there's restless nights, the tossing and the turning, and then thinking back to the good old days. Do we do that at times, you know, you're in that time where things are going bad and you think back, oh, couldn't we just return to those days? We tend to put on rose-colored glasses as we look back, but, and and we think maybe when God made more sense, maybe when we could connect the dots better and the promises of God seemed we could... We could understand. We could figure him out. He fit nice and neat in our box. Um, And then the the song in the night, I think that this could be a metaphor probably for whatever strategy that he used to use to help dull the pain, to help distract him from the ache in his heart. I do that. Do you do that? I think here in America, we, we, with all of our resources, we have made medicating pain an art form here. We know how to play. Uh, we have our entertainment. We have our other things that do. We stay, we run, 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 stay busy so that the ache isn't as noticeable, and we medicate the, the pain. didn't work for him, doesn't work for us either. So notice the spiral downward. The day of trouble comes, and he seeks the Lord, as he has probably in the past. And he keeps on seeking. I stretched out untiring hands. He goes after God. No answer. No response. There's confusion. There's frustration. It doesn't make sense. I can't harmonize what I have been taught about God, what I have previously experienced about God. Where is he in all of this? So the initial problem, whatever initiated that day of trouble, has given rise to an even deeper problem, the unresponsiveness of God to his ardent prayers. God wasn't a source of strength and comfort to him. The lines were down. The very foundations of his worldview, his approach to life, were being shaken. On what could he stand now? His situation moves him from his problem to To confusion, which spawns doubt, which in turn spews out despair, long nights of sleeplessness, gloom, and overwhelmed spirit. And it takes him to the very edge, to the very precipice, where he considers jettisoning his faith. Look at at verse 7. He's right at the brink. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? In effect, I mean, these questions are going to the very essence of who God is. The Lord, strong and gracious, merciful, showing mercy and grace to thousands, to generation upon generation. That's who God is. And so the questions are bringing him to the fact that I, I can't figure this out. I'm going through this time. God is not responding. Has, has all this praying just been a crutch? Has all of this God talk in my life and, and, and my, my seeking after God just been... Uh, an illusion? If my prayers aren't being answered, does is it in fact mean that there's no God there to answer? So he's right at the brink. He's right at the precipice. He's looking over the edge. This dark night of the soul that Asaph experienced, and I'm, I am so grateful that he puts it here. You know, it reminds us, this is, it's in the Word of God. I mean, this was the, the, the hymnal of Israel. They sang this. Can you imagine singing this? I feel like we it's still, you know, when do we ever sing laments about, you know, being honest, brutally honest with God as a congregation about our frustration? <laughs> about where are you? How long? I mean, you read the Psalms, it's filled with this raw, honest, brutally honest, doing business with God. But it's encouraging to us that if it's here, it means that if you're feeling this, you know what? You're not a spiritual failure. Others have gone through it too. Others are struggling with it too. Godly people, this was a man of God. He knew the scriptures. Think about Job. He had no understanding. He he was his integrity was 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 absolute in in as far as human beings can, are concerned. And his friends thought something has to be up because the dots for us say if you're experiencing this, you've got some secret sin in your life. And Job was saying, "No, I don't. I don't I don't understand why God is doing this, but I am innocent. And so his understanding of God, too, it didn't compute. He couldn't connect the dots. And in Job 23, he said, oh, how I wish I could find him. I would fill my mouth with arguments and I would be forever delivered from my judge. Basically, he's saying, if I could only get an audience with the sovereign creator of the universe and have my uh, uh, time with him, lay out my case, show my innocence, he would have to say, oops, oh, Job, sorry. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we muffed on this one. You know, you really, you don't deserve this. Uh, we'll, we'll get it straightened out right away. And he says, but you know what? I turned on the right hand and he isn't there. And I turn to the left, and I can't behold him. He says, I can't find God. Finally, he gets his audience a little later on, a little bit more than what he bargained for. But Job did it too. He was there. What about Paul? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says that I don't want you to be ignorant of the distress that came upon us, the afflictions that came upon us, that we were pressed beyond measure so that we despaired even of life. And what about Jesus? On the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we're in good company if we're going through this, and uh, R.T. Kendall states that he believes that 100% of truth calls the betrayal barrier that God has abandoned them. He means a period of time where it will seem that God has abandoned them. Can I read just a little bit more from my journal here? This is, I'm down here in Florida now, February 2010. My sojourn in this wilderness continues. I feel like for some time I've been standing on the edge of a realm of shadow on the increasingly slippery, soft, unsustaining ground at the edge of a murky bog. The slope is inclining steadily and I feel myself slipping progressively down further and further from solid ground down into doubt and despair. I am (laughs) 53. Who am I? I can't even get a job at a bookstore. What do I have to offer? What do I have to show for my life? I am a leaky, broken-down bark whose cable is slipping. The currents are tugging me out, out into the murky, fog-infested, rancid waters of doubt, uncertainty, fear, cynicism. Numbness. I was feeling pretty negative there. My faith, do I really call it that, is so weak. I feel like all of my talk, all my teaching, all the sermons, feel like it was so empty. What did I know? What could I have ever, how could I have ever stood before people and pretended to know what I was talking about? I'm in Florida. What am I doing here? I don't know what to do, where to turn. I feel like a helpless, insignificant speck. Oh, Lord, your grace, your grace, be gracious to this lonely, insignificant speck. Please do not flick me off into oblivion. Please lay hold of me. I can't lay hold of you. Help me for my family's sake. Dear Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. And then let me just read one more. Uh, This was on my birthday of that year, August 12, 2010. This 54th year of my life has been one of much pain and loss. To think back a year ago when it all began to get very ugly at the church. To see it all go from bad to worse, no matter what I tried. To see my reputation and standing slide further and further. It was like I was a helpless onlooker, onlooker watching everything crumble around me all of that with my son his spiral down into anger depression and rebellion to feel the gossip loss of respect the standing aloof of those who once admired liked and supported me And then my resignation the selling our of our house moving and now to be here in florida and still up in the air no job no prospects not knowing where to turn, what my purpose is anymore. I've been out of work for seven and a half months. I feel the waste. There have been a few days where I have felt God strengthening, but it does not last. I feel like I fall right back into the oblivion of purposelessness, wasted life, rejected, discarded, unwanted, a useless, and I said a bad word there. What do you want me to do with myself these days? Long, boring days. What do you want of me? I read the books about finding joy in you, but I can't experience it. I can't keep up the quest. The clouds are too dark around me. I feel like such a waste. I thank you for my family. They deserve better than me. I don't know how to snap out of it and be there better for them. I feel so useless, helpless, and don't know what to do anymore. It is not a happy birthday. I don't feel like praising you and right. I'm not focusing in on all the right theology and what a bitter man of faith would be saying right now. Am I losing hope? I don't know how I can keep holding on to what little integrity I have left, but what choice do I really have? Give up on God and wander in the desert of dry bones? Lord, the sadness and despair really press in when I have nothing to look forward to. Yes, there is heaven, but have mercy on me. It is not filling me with comfort or any measure of joy right now. What is it like to experience the pleasure and joy of your presence, to have joy and power and contentment solely in you? Is it really possible? I feel like I'm just wasting away my life is a vapor, a mist, losing its substance, fading away. The steps of a man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he stumble, he will not fall headlong, because the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have stumbled. Is God upholding me? So I feel like I'm a lot like what Asaph was expressing here, and that's, I guess, what got a hold of me is that first I saw, you know what? Others have gone through this. Asaph is on the precipice. His doubt, his confusion, the, the, the failure to see an answer of prayer, the, the sense that God is not listening, that God is not uh, uh, responding, has brought him to the edge. And he's really tempted to walk it off, to walk off, to jettison his faith, to give up. But something stops him something stops him. He looks over the edge and he backs away. And I said that too. I said, where am I going to go? Give up on God? Something stopped me. I know who stopped me. And here now in the last, in these last verses, we see this shift And before the gloom is there, the the doubt, the despair, the temptation to just chuck it all, something stops Asaph. And just like a a pinprick of light starts appearing in his heart and his soul. And as he turns his attention and gazes at that light, it begins to, to grow. It begins to expand. And little by little, more and more, his confidence is restored, his hope in God, his understanding of God, his his assurance that he can keep going returns to his heart. So let's look at that just for a second here. Verse 10, here's the shift, re-emerging into light of re-energized faith. Verse 10, very crucial turning point. Then I said, something stopped him. He stopped that trajectory that he was on. He, he stopped in his tracks and he said, I'm going to take a different look at this now. Then I said, I will appeal to this. Here's the decision. It's a resolute decision to, to shift gears here. To the, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Notice the logic in verses 7 through 9. <clears throat> Before, Asaph is seeing God through his problems. He's following the logic of disillusionment. If you could, if you could see his mind as a, as a painting. And so his mind is this canvas, and the thoughts that he is processing are the brush strokes on that canvas. So what is in the foreground? foreground In verses 7 through 9. Where is God? What's in the foreground? His problems. Himself. He's at the center. All the stuff that's assaulting him. It starts with him. His problems are looming very large. They're in the foreground of his thinking. And God is there. He's there distant, painted there in the background. And he makes a decision that he's going to take out a new canvas now. And he's going to paint a new picture. And he's going to start painting with his gaze upon the Most High, Elyon. It is is the Hebrew term that, that emphasized the exalted, supreme, ultimate position of the creator of the universe, the Most High. And then he says, I'm going to appeal to this, the years of the right hand the right hand of God was the, became in the Hebrew scriptures a picture, a, a figurative of his mighty, omnipotent, sovereign strength to act on behalf of his people. And it was first used in Exodus chapter 15 in this way to, to characterize God's action for his people. Exodus 15 was the song of Moses when he sang in triumph. The Lord has triumphed gloriously. He's cast the rider into the sea. It's when Israel faced this time when Pharaoh's army was pressing in on them. And God was delivering them out of 400 years of bondage and slavery. He led them out to the Red Sea. They thought they had been trapped. And miraculously, God opens, parts the waves... And they walk on dry ground. Pharaoh's army follows. The waves go over. They're on the other side, and they are dancing and doing a jig. God has showed up for them big time. The right hand of God has acted for them. It's important for us to see this because it's Exodus 15 that likely Asaph is thinking about as he goes on through these verses that helps him to return to a re-energized, reinvigorated faith in spite of the fact that he's still in his problem. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. This is all reminiscent of Exodus chapter 15. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Now, notice verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? That, again, is very reminiscent of Moses' song in chapter 15, verse 11, where he said, uh, um, I'm missing it now. But it's that who is like our God among the gods, majestic in holiness, uh, is what he said. Uh, here it is. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Your way, O God, is holy. Your way, O God, is holy. Now, when we think about holy, what do we, what do we know about that? Holy means to be set apart to be in a different category, to be, and when it's used of God, it's, it's likening him to be in a league all his own. He is completely apart. He is set apart in his, in his perfections. He is set apart in his purity. When he does something, it's perfect. When he has plans for us, those are perfect plans, when he, exer- when he acts in our life, it is done without mistake. Your way, your wisdom, your, your uh, um, judgment is absolutely perfect. Your way with me, even in this time, is perfect without error. Your motive with allowing me to go through this is perfect and pure and good. And then he says, what God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of God, and jo- the children of Jacob and Joseph. And so Asaph looks back to that time when, when God redeemed his people. That's what they look back to. When God unmistakably acted in history... And demonstrated in an undeniable way that he was for his people. And he brought them through that Red Sea experience. And then in these last verses, Asaph waxes eloquent. He uses poetic imagery to really underscore the wonderful miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. And in that, we can see three key truths that we all need to hold on to. They need to be bedrock truths that need to be in our life, very solid, very firm. Um, It's like ballast in a a ship's hold. You remember the the old sailing days, the the wooden ships of sail. They would take these huge rocks, and they would put them deep in the hold of the ship, uh, tons and tons of these rocks, to serve as a weighty ballast, a steadying force, so that when the ship was out in rough seas and the winds were blowing on the ship and the waves were rocking the ship, this ballast would steady the ship and keep it upright so that the waves would not overwhelm and the wind wouldn't blow them over. And that's what we need in our life. And there are three truths here that you need to have as weighty rocks of ballast to put down into your hold... To keep you steady when you go through these periods of time, the day of trouble. Man was born to trouble. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. It's coming for us. If If we haven't gone through it, we're going to. We might be in it now. You need that ballast to keep you steady. And what are they? Let's look here. When the water saw you, this is verse 16, When the water saw you, God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook. And so here we see uh, that we can see the, the power of God in his parting the Red Seas here. He is in control. That's the first one. He's in control. His awesome power to rescue his people by parting the very waves that had trapped them and left them exposed to the enemy demonstrates his sovereign power is greater than anything we may face. He's in control. Whatever you're going through, he is in charge. He is the one who is seated on the throne. He is the fact that includes all other facts. He is the reality around which all other realities orbit. He is in absolute sovereign control, and it goes down to the very details of your life. He knows when the sparrow falls. He knows exactly what you're going through. He's counted the number of hairs on your head. He knows all about you. He's in charge. He's in control. But then what else? Verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Can you imagine how the Israelites felt when uh, Pharaoh is breathing down their necks? God has led them out in the wilderness, and they're camped by the Red Sea now. And Pharaoh says, hey, what are they going? They're wandering around. What did I do? Why did I let them go? And he brings his army out, and they're trapped between the devil and the deep blue sea. There's no out. There's no way out. And what was their reaction? Why, Moses, did you bring us out to this? Where is God to let us die like this? They had no idea. There was no out for them. It never entered their minds that the pathway was going to be through that sea. (laughs) Right? And what does God do? He parts the waves. He knows what he's doing. That's the second point. He knows what he is doing. His path was in the sea. His footprints, footprints were not seen. Reminds us that his inscrutable wisdom leads his people along a pathway that at times seems blocked and threatening, reminding us, listen to this, reminding us that inability to understand how God is working is no sign that he's not at work. I want to say that again. Inability to understand how God is working is no sign that he is not at work. His footprints were in the sea. But lastly, he's with us all the way. Look at verse 20. You led your people. The Lord is my shepherd. If we know Jesus, he's my shepherd. He's my father. You're a good, good father. It's who you are, and I'm your child. That's who I am. He's with us all the way. He led his people like a flock, brings home to us his unfailing love as our good shepherd to tenderly guide, protect, and provide for his people and bring them all the way to his promised rest. Asaph looked back to that time of redemption for his people. And as he looked, God loomed large again in his vision. God was painted in the foreground. And as he saw God in the foreground, the problems on the other side, he looked through that lens and saw his problems. He's a mighty God. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. His way was in the sea. His way is holy. Remember, his way is perfect. He knows what he's doing with me, and he's with me, even though I might not know it, even though I might not feel it and see it right now, he's promised, he will never leave me, nor forsake me. They look back to the Red Sea, at that redemption experience. We have, that was just a foreshadowing of the ultimate act, the ultimate proof that God is for you and me. In Romans 8, verse 30 says that, if God is for us, who can be against us? And here's the proof. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, for you and for me, how shall he not with him freely give us all that we need? So as we come to the communion time again, Sunday after Sunday, it's good for us to recalibrate our perspective, to recalibrate our gaze and recall again, to allow in the, on the canvas of our mind to paint how large God is in our life. We need to gaze on him. That's why it's so important for us to be in the word, to be gazing at who God is and have accurate knowledge of, of our Father and who he is so that as we look at our problems, he's looming large in the foreground. So let's remember... Here's here's the evidence again. Jesus came and he died for you and for me. His body was broken. His blood was shed. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. And that is the proof that God is with us, that God is for us. So let's keep, let's back off from the edge. Let's keep trusting. Let's, Let's camp out in those last 10 verses there of Psalm 77. Father, um, I pray that you would uh, help us to... you. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. You know us. You know our frame. You remember that we are but dust. Thank you, Father, that you have compassion on us as a father has on his children. And thank you that uh, your mercies are as high as the heavens and that we can rest in the fact that you will see us. You who began the good work in us, you are going to complete it and see it to the end. God, we believe. Help our unbelief today. Amen.